0: Welcome back to the Jacob Wolf Show. We're going to go over a lot of news today. Of course, the big breaking news out yesterday. New York Attorney General Letitia James coming after Donald Trump. Once again, I have dealt with this AG's office myself. They are suing me as we speak. I'm going to give you some insights on that situation that you can't get anywhere else. Plus, we're going to talk about this whistleblower report out of the FBI. The FBI refusing to go after pedophiles. Why? They're more interested in going after Trump supporters, it seems. We're going to talk about that whistleblower report and much more on this episode. It's great to have all of you once again, whether you're watching live on YouTube or on podcast apps everywhere. I'm, I'm very pleased to have everyone today. Uh, and we begin, of course, talking about this situation. Letitia James coming after Donald Trump Everyone saw the Drudge Report uh, front page, I'm sure, of New York sues Trump Klan for fraud, Art of the Steel, inflated net worth by billions. This was a 222-page filing. Uh, she made an open referral to the uh, IRS for criminal prosecution as if the IRS needed any referral uh, to harass none other than Donald Trump himself, as if they needed her to refer them. In order to do that. Well, uh, all of that at the top of Drudge Report. But it was very unclear from the reporting, from the Twitter headlines, exactly what Letitia James and the New York AG, what their claim actually was. What, in fact, uh, did they believe that uh, Trump did? And eventually, if you looked deeply enough, uh, you could find out, in fact, what they were saying. But it was not uh, terribly clear. It did not make A lot of sense. Uh, Not a lot of this made uh, any sense at all. But I look in this article. This is, uh, for those of you watching live, you can see this on the screen. It's a report out of CNBC. It says here, James said that Trump massively overstated the values of his assets in statements to banks, insurance companies, and the IRS to to obtain more favorable loan and insurance terms for his company, as well as to lower tax obligations. Now, I am by no means a tax attorney. I'm not a tax expert. But anybody who knows anything about the way that taxes work, particularly when it comes to real estate, particularly when it comes to property taxes and the like, you will know uh, that having more valuable property means that you pay more taxes, not less. You don't pay fewer dollars in taxes by having more valuable property. So how would inflating the value of his properties allow him to save money on taxes? Makes zero sense. Everyone knows uh, who's ever bought an insurance policy that if you're buying an insurance policy on a more valuable property or buying an insurance policy for a more valuable automobile, that policy costs more money, of course, because any Damage would presumably uh, cost more. Anything the insurance company had to cover would cost more, and so they charge you more. So how overestimating the values of your buildings would cause you to save money on insurance, again, is totally unclear. And, well, she points out an instance of uh, Mar-a-Lago. She says that Mar-a-Lago only generated uh, $25 million approximately in this one year she talks about in revenue. Therefore, they say the property should be worth something like $75 million. Well, that's what she says. And we're talking about a primetime piece of real estate in Florida, a primetime, very unique piece of real estate. Where on earth uh, does a primetime piece of real estate like that trade at uh, three times gross income? Where does a piece of property like that trade at three times revenue? Nowhere. Of course, it's worth a lot more than $75 million. The claim from her that the property is worth $75 million is absurd. And again, it's a property in Florida. She doesn't have an interest in the property taxes from the, from the estate, certainly. It certainly isn't a matter of New York property taxes, of New York income taxes. The property is located in Florida. And again, if Trump claims that it's worth about 10 times what it's worth, that was the claim from the New York AG's office, then he would end up paying more in taxes. In fact, one would think that if all of these allegations from the AG are true, that they're going to owe Trump a big tax refund. If anything, they're going to owe him a big tax refund is what they would owe him. Now, she earlier rejected a settlement offer from Trump in this matter. He offered to settle the case. They rejected it. Something tells me that this case ultimately will be settled, but that they just didn't want to settle it before uh, they had a chance to do a big press conference and get a lot of press out of it. That, to me, would seem to be what would most likely happen. As somebody points out in the chat here, you would pay significantly more insurance premiums, insuring a two-bedroom apartment versus a 20-bedroom mansion. Of course. Of course. So, it is just absolutely absurd, her claims. As I mentioned at the start of the show, uh, this same AG, this same woman, is also suing me as we speak. She's suing me and Jack Berkman under the Ku Klux Klan Act of 1871. If there's anything as obscene as claiming that overvaluing your properties makes you pay less taxes, if there's anything so absurd, it might be accusing me, a Jew, and Jack Berkman, a Jew, of being Ku Klux Klansmen. If there's just one thing that would be quite as absurd, it would probably have to be that. So this uh, lawsuit from the New York AG is completely ridiculous. It'll probably be settled out of court. They wanted to get their press out of this. It's about as ridiculous as their lawsuit against me that they've been pursuing now for several years, claiming that I'm somehow a Klansman, uh, deposing me for 10 plus hours, deposing Jack Berkman for more than 20 hours. It's all about harassment. You have to understand what this is really about. It isn't even about throwing people in jail for the most part. What what this is about is it's about taking high-profile Trump supporters and subsuming them, with so many lawsuits so many criminal indictments so many cases in so many states at the same time that you are paralyzed even if you can afford to pay the legal fees associated with these things forget the penalties forget the judgments that never seem to really come it's the legal fees alone and it's about paralyzing people that dare support president trump and that's what this is truly about they have made very clear you come and you show up on january 6 to support uh, president trump You will be targeted. You support President Trump in a high-profile, meaningful way, the way that Jacob Wall did. We're going to come after you in several states at once. We're going to surround you on all sides with bullshit. That's what uh, these people are all about. That is what they do. It is all about uh, subsuming people in legal fees, paralyzing them, making it harder for them to hire people, making it harder for them to uh, go about their daily lives. It is harassment. It's un-American. It is demonic, and these people have got to be at some point uh, brought to heal. It, it will have to happen. They are utterly out of control. When I'm being deposed for 10 hours by somebody who's hopped up on methamphetamine, this uh, guy named Rick Sawyer was, was on meth, clearly his, his pupils were the size of quarters. He was bouncing up and down in his chair and, and, and writhing and, and stuttering and, and grinding his teeth together like somebody who's just been absolutely blown out on meth or ecstasy that's what we're dealing with. You could see the the fires of hell burning in his eyes. You could see it. A lot of these people smell like sulfur, literally. If you ever come in contact with them, if you ever happen to be in D.C. and they're seated at a table next to you, you will will smell a a, a certain stench, which is not a pleasant one. It is absolutely true. It is not simply something you hear in the rumor mill. Now, I also want to talk about quickly here this whole concept of declassification that there's been a a lot made out of this Trump finally got a chance to uh, respond in an interview with Sean Hannity and uh, I think what he said was quite interesting liberals have a problem with it but uh, we're gonna look at that here
1: so let me ask you this question because I I think this is the next logical question because the president of the United States you unlike say Hillary Clinton in her case a president has the power to declassify Correct. Okay you had said on Truth Social a number of times, you did de- declassify. I did declassify, yes. Okay. Is there a process? What was your process to declassify? It doesn't have to be a process, as no. I understand it. You know, there's different people say different right. things, but as I understand, there doesn't have to be. If you're the president of the United States, you can declassify just by saying um, it's declassified, even by thinking about it, because you're sending it to Mar-a-Lago or to wherever you're sending it, and there doesn't have to be a process There can be a process, but there doesn't have to be. You're the president. You make that decision. So when you send it, it's declassified. We... I declassified everything. Now, I declassified things, and we were having a lot of problems with NARA. You know, NARA uh, is a radical left group of people running that thing, and when you send documents over there, I would say there's a very good chance that a lot of those documents will never be seen again. There's also absolutely speculation true speculation because of what they did, the severity of the FBI coming and raiding Mar-a-Lago. Were they looking for the Hillary Clinton emails that were deleted, but they are around someplace? Were they looking for the well, spying you know, or you you had it? Did, did no, no, they may be saying, they uh, may have thought that it was that you in did. there. okay. And a lot of people said the only thing that would give the kind of severity that they showed by actually coming in and raiding with many, many people is the Hillary Clinton deal, the Russia, Russia, Russia stuff, or, I mean, there there are a number.
0: Is Trump correct? Can you simply declassify something as a president by mailing it? By simply thinking this is declassified, I'm sending it out, therefore it is. The answer is yes. The answer is unequivocally yes. Now, it may not sound correct to you. It may not sound intuitive. It may not Sound like a policy that would exist in government, where normally, for anybody to do anything, there has to be fifteen different layers of paperwork. If nothing else, uh, because that paperwork will create jobs, red tape, paperwork, forms, signatures, authorizations, stamps. But in the case of presidential declassification, that power is absolute. It is an absolute uh, sort of power, and and to to see that in action, uh, we need look no further. Uh, than a great report uh, that happened to come out uh, back in 2019. This is from uh, NPR, this report. Uh, It talks about declassification. There was a controversy at the time as to whether Trump could or could not uh, send out these particular uh, photos that had to do with uh, North Korea. The report from NPR was entitled, Can President Trump Really Tweet a Highly Classified Satellite Photo? Yep, he can. This is from NPR. This is from National Public Radio, the leftists that run that operation, and in fact, the president can tweet something out. This is again back in 2019, dealing with issues of uh, North Korea satellite imagery and the like. Uh, the report here from the NPR, from NPR, again entitled uh, "Can President Trump Really Tweet a Highly Classified Satellite Photo?" Yep, he can. Here's part of the report. Here it says. Hannum, deputy director of the Open Nuclear Network in Vienna, says she has seen lots of crystal clear, uh, lots of images over the years, uh, but it was so crystal clear and high resolution. I did not believe it would come from a satellite, she says. Well, yeah, there's some pretty good spy satellites out there. Really, really good spy satellites out there. Uh, There are still few details about how the image made its way to Trump's Twitter account, The president received his daily intelligence briefing at 11.30 a.m. Eastern Time, about two hours before the tweet. CNBC reported that Trump was shown the photo during the briefing. A flash is visible in the center of the image, which suggests that Trump or someone else took a photo of the original image, which Hannum says might have been the intelligence briefing slide. The Office of the Director of National Intelligence, normally called ODNI, referred questions about the image to the White House. We had a photo and I released it, which I have the absolute right to do, Trump told reporters late Friday. Such a disclosure of classified information by anyone but the but the president uh, would end in jail time, says Bruce Klinger, a former CIA officer now at the Conservative Heritage Foundation. Anyone else uh, who revealed it would have been in Leavenworth Prison serving out a prison term, Klinger said. But in a world of classified secrets, the president of the United States has absolute power. That is Again, from NPR here, the president has absolute power. This was an instance to it, and uh, it it made perfect sense. And and the other thing about this image is that there wasn't just a flash in the center of the image. Uh, There was also uh, some black uh, redactions that were clearly done, you know, in photo editing after the fact, after the photo was taken, uh, that would appear to be kind of the top of the photo where it might say some specifications of the satellite or which agency it came from, whether it was the National Reconnaissance Office or CIA proper or DIA or whoever, in fact, actually uh, had the satellite that, that processed that image. So, yes, the spy satellites are very good. I mean, they, they are remarkably good. Uh, they can, as of 1992, they could read uh, the time off of your watch, presuming you set it on the hood of a car, some kind of clear high-contrast background, uh, from space, and frankly the, there's no ultra secret sauce. I mean, what these things are is they're just real big giant telescopes, frankly, and what they do is is they are in space and presuming that there isn't total cloud cover, they can see pretty well. Uh, they also use uh, infrared uh, they can use infrared uh, both passively and they have uh pretty classified in terms of their specification, but very powerful uh, infrared laser illuminators that they can use. These spy satellites are, are pretty cool pieces of technology, but uh, principally they're telescopes and they integrate some IR, they'll integrate some thermal imaging from time to time and some other technologies, computerize it all together and, and get a pretty high quality image. Uh, sometimes though, you, you know, because of certain issues, you may be better off with a drone. You also could be better off with a high-speed aircraft like the SR-71 Blackbird, which, of course, was retired, um, but they're looking to bring back something similar called the SR-72 very soon. But the bottom line is that that is all to say that the president does indeed have declassification power. NPR admitted it. The CIA stooges uh, at the Heritage Foundation admitted it. It is absolutely and totally the case that he can declassify anything like this. Now, I just want to take a quick look at some... Uh, market data here real quick. Uh, This is uh, out of uh, the the Twitter account of Charlie Biello. He has been on Twitter forever, man. I mean, he's been tweeting charts uh, uh, daily for a long time. Uh, Charts really not important, but what he points out is that a 60-40 portfolio of US stocks and bonds is down 16.2% in 2022 on pace for its worst calendar year since 1937. So 60% stocks, 40% bonds, it's down a 16.2% in 2022. Now, by the way, this whole strategy, not exactly 60-40, that's kind of the general split that people would would opt for, but there's a a concept known as risk parity in the market. Uh, It's really the strategy that Ray Dalio, he didn't invent it by any means, but he uh, really came to employ it in large measure at Bridgewater Capital originally. I mean, later on, they had funds that offered all kinds of different types of exposure, but that was their principal strategy early on. And the whole concept of risk parity is to say that rather than just investing in 60-40 stocks bonds or just investing 50-50 or some arbitrary mix of the two, what you should instead do is you should observe what the volatility is in the two, whether you use historical volatility, whether you use implied volatility into the future as determined by the options markets or other derivatives markets. It's up for debate. People take different approaches to this. But what you do is you take into account the volatility, and you use that to weight the portfolio and give those two asset classes, that is stocks and bonds, equal weighting as determined by their respective volatility. So for instance, if you were to just take a historical average, it's not necessarily true this year, it's not true into the future and the implied volatility, but if you were to take the kind of historical average, which is that stocks have been twice as volatile as bonds, then what you would determine is that you should have, uh, assuming you wanted them to be equally weighted in volatility, something like two-thirds bonds and one-third stocks, if that's what you were looking to do. The other way that people do this is that they'll have two-thirds stocks and then they'll lever the bond side three to one. Because when when it comes to trading fixed income assets, particularly government bonds, but really any bonds, you can achieve tremendous leverage in bonds. In, in my former life, I, I traded a lot of fixed income products. I traded uh, short-term interest rate derivatives, also known as STIRs, uh, mostly the Euro dollar curve and the Euribor curve. These are the uh, 90-day interest rates, but you trade the various months, the expectations out into the future. And so you're, you're trading what people's expectations are in different points in time And you do that through various spreads like butterflies and pack spreads, etc. You trade calendar spreads into butterflies and back out into calendars. And people trade order flow in these products, basically trading against big financial institutions that come in with big sloppy orders. And even still human traders in that particular market can still make a living churning out thousands of trades a day, assuming, and this is a big assumption, that you either get rebates from the exchange which means you're actually getting paid to trade you're getting paid to provide liquidity or at least you have an exchange seat or you have some provision such that your uh, commissions are either zero on the trades zero per contract or like i said if the exchange is actually paying you to make the trades you could actually have a scratch day and be up so that's how the, the world of market making and fixed income works in in the era of the volcker rule where banks were severely limited as to what they could do in their own proprietary books. This business became spun out to what sort of called themselves market-making firms or or fixed-income proprietary trading firms, a lot of them based out of Chicago, many of them based out of London, a few in New York, and that's how that whole market worked. So anyway, I I was involved in that in a very small way, trading for some Chinese family offices uh, for a couple of years, and it's a it, it's a boring way to make a living. Certainly, I mean it's 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 you wake up at 4 a.m. Pacific time at the time for those on the West Coast, and you uh, work until about 2 p.m. and you're staring at the screen until your eyes just about bleed out of your head. I, I'm convinced I probably lost some of my vision capacity doing that job, even for just a few years, uh, just staring at the blue light on the screen. Especially back then, the monitors were not as good. Uh, but again, you look at these statistics. The uh, stock bond portfolio of 60-40 stocks to bonds, all U.S., is going to be down 16.2% so far in 2022, uh, which puts it on par with 1937 for being the worst year uh, in U.S. history as measured all the way back to 1928. So from 1928 to 2022, your worst years in those portfolios were uh, 27.3% down in 1931, 20.7% down in 1937. The third worst year, so we're talking Great Depression here in those periods of time. Great Depression. And today, you'd be looking at uh, down 16.2%, and that's with a strong dollar. So it's not as though you've been you know losing value on the dollar side of this trade either. Now, again, strong dollar is bad for a lot of U.S. stocks that, that export things like iPhones and, and uh, leaves other countries with less capacity to buy products from U.S. companies. So a strong dollar is not always good for the U.S., contrary to what uh, the layman might think. What, what's maybe most surprising about this is you look at some other really crappy years in the markets, and you have 13.9% down in 2008, so you know, much, much uh, the same as this year. You wouldn't think of this year as being as bad as 2008 in the markets, but if you have a certain portfolio mix, it has been, because bonds were much stronger in 08. This year bonds are down big. TLT I think is down 30% on the year or something. 2002 7.1, 2001 4.9% down. 74 Jimmy Carter era down 14.7%. So it's striking, you know, it's been a, it's been an orderly decline in the markets. It's been a very orderly decline. There hasn't been many flash crashes. There haven't been many times when you 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 can't get your money out of uh money market funds like you had in 08. The banks are much stronger today than they were in 2008. The mortgage-backed security market these days is much stronger than in 2008. In fact, all credit markets essentially are much stronger today than they were in 2008 with regard to uh, whether or not those bits of paper are likely to default. Yeah, they've been much stronger today. And yet, the market has been down uh, quite a lot. So it's, uh, it's, it's striking to see. It is really striking to see. Uh, we go here now, I want to play a clip here from from Don Lemon, and I know many of you have probably seen this, but uh, wow, you you just watch what happens to his face for those of you watching on video, but either way, uh, here's a clip uh, from uh, CNN Don Lemon with a royal court uh, analyst here. Well, this is coming when, you know, there's all of this wealth and you hear about it comes as England is facing rising costs of living, a living crisis, austerity budget cuts, and so on. And then you have those who are asking uh, for reparations for colonialism, and they're wondering, you know, $100 billion, $24 billion. And who's asking for that exactly? It's, I'm not sure. Here and there, $500 million there. Some people want to be paid back, and, uh, and members of the public are wondering, why are we suffering when you, are, you, know, you have all of this vast wealth? Those are legitimate concerns.
2: Well, I think you're right about reparations in terms of if people want it, though— What they need to do is you always need to go back to the beginning of a supply chain. Where was the beginning of the supply chain? That was in Africa, and when across the entire world, when slavery was taking place, which was the first nation in the world that abolished slavery? The first nation in the world to abolish it. It was started by William Wilberforce, was the British. In in Great Britain, they abolished slavery. 2,000 naval men died on the high seas trying to stop slavery. Why? Because the African kings were rounding up their own people. They had them on cages, waiting in the beaches. No one was running into Africa to get them. And I think you're totally right. If reparations need to be paid, we need to go right back to the beginning of that supply chain and say, who was rounding up their own people and having them handcuffed in cages? Absolutely, that's where they should start. And maybe, I don't know, the descendants of those families where they died in the high seas, trying to stop the slavery, that those families should receive something too, I think, at the same time.
0: Well, Don Lemon was just uh, kind of dumbstruck by this, but it's true. And you think about the way that, for example, it works uh, in the illegal drug market and the prosecution of drug crimes. If you're caught in possession for your own personal usage, you have a certain penalty. If you're caught in possession with intent to distribute as like a street dealer, a little bit of drugs, you're punished more harshly if you're caught running a major distribution operation or production operation, if you are, as she puts it, the beginning of the supply chain in the drug market, assuming uh, like slavery, drugs are bad, slavery is bad, drugs are bad, uh, then you are punished uh, most severely. And so when you look at the slavery situation, is it the case that the people at the beginning of the supply chain, the people that captured the slaves and put them on the market, they are, in fact, the most guilty. The, the slave dealers are more guilty than the slave users in the way that drug dealers are punished more harshly than drug users. Is that the case? It would stand to reason. It's the way that we process other moral issues as far as which part of the whole degenerate chain is worse than the other. But this was really striking, and it's the first time I've ever heard uh, somebody make that argument in the mainstream media. I'm sure she's not going to be v- invited back on uh, CNN. It doesn't usually work that way, uh, unfortunately for her. Want to go here to this report? This is interesting. If you're like me, uh, you've been noticing that there's just been a ton of unexplained horrible car accidents lately. I mean, it just seems like more than usual, and I wonder—is uh, it? Is it just getting back to pre-pandemic traffic patterns, more people on the road again, uh, something like that? Is this something in which uh, it is actually worse than pre-pandemic? And I I just, my gut has told me, anecdotally, I have looked at it and thought, uh, no, it's actually worse today. I mean, it just, on Monday when when we were doing the show, of course, we do the show every Monday and Thursday, 2 p.m. live. I was going to do the show, power was out. Turns out there was a, a gruesome death of a lineman, car crashes into the lineman, Truck sets on fire. just Horrible, horrible situation. Don't even want to go into it. it was so awful to, to hear about. Just down the road from me. And it's just been happening constantly. Just constantly. These horrible wrecks where it, it seems like the only way that they could have been caused. In fact, just in Arlington, not far away from where I used to live and where I frequent all the time, there's an Uber driver that just careened into the front of a bar. Boom, caught into flames. And all of these situations uh, seem like ones in which basically people are incapacitated suddenly behind the wheel. They either are unconscious or they have a heart attack behind the wheel. That turned out to be the case with the Uber driver that went into the front of the uh, restaurant and bar. What's going on? Why are so many people having heart attacks behind the wheel? This never seemed to happen in this way before because it's not just regular fender benders. These accidents are accidents in which that, that actress that just died recently, who was uh, Ellen DeGeneres' uh, first public uh, girlfriend. The name escapes me, the, the blonde woman. Just recently died. It's like she just kind of blew through the stop sign. It was like she was maybe dead on arrival where she just kind of died behind the wheel or something. And there are potential causes of all these heart attacks that I don't think we're allowed to talk about. Questions that we aren't allowed to ask about what might be causing this. Just recently, uh, yesterday in fact, guy who was on my... Uh, middle school basketball team, went on to play for UCLA. He was a grade younger than me, about a year and a half younger than me, but grade younger than me. Uh, he just suddenly died, 22 years old, just boom, just sudden death. They call it sudden adult death syndrome now, SADS, as if that's a real thing. You know, sudden infant death syndrome, everybody knows about that, but they call it sudden adult death syndrome. So it seems like people are just dying behind the wheel or having heart attacks or something, and there's all these mysterious car accidents, but Again, I wanted to know whether it was statistically true. Well, we had this report out from Dr. Peter Atia. You've probably seen him uh, on uh, the Joe Rogan podcast or others before. He's, he's out there in the public quite a bit. And uh, his new article, uh, The Epidemic on the Road Motor Vehicle Accidents Are a Common Yet Often Overlooked Cause of Death And the Numbers Are Rising. The report says in February 2020, I shared a newsletter on traffic fatalities detailing various types of automotive accidents and how one might reduce the risk of each. Above all, I emphasize that car crashes are an extraordinarily common yet overlooked cause of death in the United States. Little did I know it at the time, but the problem was about to become much worse. In 2019, a total of 36,355 people died in traffic accidents in the U.S., In 2021, that number jumped to 42,915, an 18% increase in just two years. That surge affected every age group on every type of road in every month of the year. Following a brief lull in the first two to three months of pandemic lockdowns, car accident fatalities have risen sharply relative to pre-pandemic levels. Okay, so a lot of numbers there. Let's just slow down here. They have increased significantly, 18%. In 2021 versus 2019, 18% higher. So 2019 really no pandemic going on. 2021 some remaining uh, pandemic fear, but a, a rise in people on the roads. And and 2020 obviously was lower because fewer people on the roads. But 2021 it's way higher than 2019. Is it because people were rusty? That could seem to be an explanation. You know, people are just kind of rusty. They haven't driven much in 2020, if at all, and they're getting back on the road. Seems like that could be. Seems like that's a a, a logical figure, but. Maybe uh, not, because in 2022, as he writes here, there appears to be a continuation of that morbid trend, with automotive deaths from January through March outpacing those in 2021 by 7%, according to a report last month by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. So uh, unless you're talking about something, I looked at kind of a broader scope of these numbers just to determine, okay, 7%, 18%, but what's the general variance in these numbers? When you look at the numbers adjusted for population, so talking kind of per capita, they do remain fairly consistent. What does remain inconsistent is that the numbers for traffic deaths remain consistent, but some years other causes of death will outpace it. So some years you'll have, you know, as people become more obese, the obesity-related causes of morbidity and mortality increase uh, when you have— you know, mass casualty events in certain states, those can outpace suicide has been one that has gone way up, seemingly with the overprescription of all of these antipsychotic drugs, benzodiazepines, amphetamines, many people on six, seven, eight, ten, sometimes more different psychotropic medications, many of which a listed side effect are suicidal ideations or actions. But the numbers of people truly dying from Car accidents on a per capita basis remain pretty consistent, but suddenly they are going up. Johnny here in the uh, chat—we've uh, got a chat for those of you who watch live on YouTube—says uh, marijuana usage has gone up, obesity has gone up, heart attack, depression. Yeah, marijuana usage has gone up. Uh, more people are driving on the roads stoned. I can tell you if you go to a place that is, uh, let's just say, a diverse neighborhood. No, I'll just say it: if you go to the ghetto. And you happen to be driving through the ghetto, which I don't recommend. Stay out of bad neighborhoods. That's one way to keep yourself very safe. Just you just decrease the likelihood of all kinds of problems: carjacking, uh, people uh, vandalizing your car, stealing your car, uh, getting hit by a stray bullet, uh, people uh, brake checking you to run an insurance scam against you. You just decrease the probability of all kinds of different incidents like those. Uh, If you just stay out of those neighborhoods. So I I always advise that. But if you do, what you'll find is that most of the cars that are driving around you in the ghetto are just pluming marijuana smoke. People just smoke this stuff behind the wheel and they insist that it doesn't impair them. And it does. It obviously impairs you behind the wheel. It's crazy to say otherwise. It's lunacy. And they just do it with impunity. The cops don't really uh, try to enforce it. Cops have given up in many big cities enforcing anything like that. So Peter Attia here, we're talking about this epidemic on the roads. He's pointing out that these numbers are just going up and up and up. Does it have something to do with uh, the therapeutics that are out there that many people have been taking more and more and more? Is it the opiate epidemic? Is it more people smoking pot behind the wheel? What is the case? What is really going on here? It seems to me like there are a lot of bizarre incidents taking place. It also seems that there are a lot of people, an increased number of people having sudden heart attacks. You know, another indication of this, by the way, you watch Apple's new presentation. Did any of you see this, the the Apple presentation on the uh, new iPhones? I didn't watch the whole thing. I've seen the highlights. And it seems like a great number of their features are based around you having a heart attack or a stroke. Now, I understand the country's getting older as, as time goes on. The the boomers are getting older. They're adopting iPhones. I mean, I, I can understand the general trend. But it seems that like increasingly, as Apple does more and more presentations for their Apple Watches, for the iPhones, it seems like just an increasing number of their features, an increasing percentage of the time on the stage is focused on, And when you have a heart attack, the watch will call the 911 ambulance. And when you fall down the stairs with a stroke, the phone will call the police or call the fire department. Or when you uh, uh, crash your car suddenly, the watch will detect it and call EMS. And then when you pass out and wake up in the desert, you can use the satellite feature to contact an SOS message to a satellite. It's just—it's like an increasing number of these damn features on these iPhones are about you having heart attacks and strokes. They're, they're morbid. And by the way, this, this eSIM thing, we're going to have to save that for another show. That is bad news. You'll recall on one of the first episodes of this show, I uh, discussed how to keep yourself private, use a SIM card, use a bring-your-own-device SIM card, don't have your name connected to the purchase of the SIM card, use cash, buy prepaid, this, that, or the other. How to do that. And keep yourself reasonably secure. It's not foolproof. It's not that it cannot be circumvented, but it's reasonably secure. And by the way, it makes it hard for somebody to do what they call a SIM swapping attack, where what people will do is this. They say, okay, let's see if we can find Jacob Wall's phone number. They find Jacob Wall's phone number. Then what they do is that they go in uh, to the Sprint or the T-Mobile or the Verizon or the at and store. They know which carrier you have. They say, hey, I'm Jacob Wall. They find a guy who looks like him, fake ID. They get your, your SIM card swapped to a new SIM card claiming that they lost their phone and they're you. They attack it that way. Well, guess what? If the carrier doesn't even know who has your number like you're jacob wall okay what's your number sorry we don't see your account we can't swap it if they don't even know it makes it a hell of a lot harder to do that now the new iphones have eSIM, which is where you don't have a sim card it's all virtual you have to be completely compromised from a privacy standpoint and uh, they claim it's more secure against sim swapping it's not it doesn't even require somebody to go in in person all they have to do is engineer it over the phone call in all they have to do is know your ssn they don't have to have a copy of your id it's it's uh, really disturbing. I know people who've been victim of these attacks. It's really disturbing. Another uh, story on the roads that was just uh, a little bit ridiculous. uh, This is from ProPublica. There was this big debate about how, you know, we need to not have police officers pull people over for speeding, taillights, bad tags, all of that, because that's racist. So in Chicago, they said don't pull over people for that stuff you're going to be automatically unconsciously racist if you do so. Yes, even if you're a black cop, it doesn't make sense. Okay. Well, so they replaced the cops doing so with speed cameras. And and I'm no fan of speed cameras. I think they're kind of chicken shit. California would never allow speed cameras, I don't think. Uh, maybe they do in some places now. I remember even red light cameras growing up in California when those first came out. People would unbolt them and just toss them out, just toss them on the side of the road or take them. People did not put up with that stuff there, and they were limited to basically Beverly Hills for a long time. Well, they wanted to get around racism, so they use uh, speed cameras. And uh, here's the title from ProPublica: It says, "Chicago's race-neutral traffic cameras ticket black and Latino drivers at the most." Uh, the most, uh, a ProPublica analysis found that traffic cameras in Chicago's disproportionately uh, ticket black and Latino motorists. But city officials plan to stick with them, and other cities may adopt them too. So they switch to traffic cameras, they switch to uh, speed cameras, and now they say, well, uh, when you just use speed cameras, it's even more disproportionately catching black and Latino drivers speeding. The cameras must be racist. What's going on? So what do you do? Do, do we need a different speed limit for black people and Latino people? Should they be able to drive faster than white people on the road? I don't know how you plan to remediate this. Or maybe you just say they're above the law. They can speed. If they get caught by the speed camera, uh, they don't get any ticket. Maybe that's the assumption here. Now, this is a really long, drawn-out, nonsensical article claiming that even the speed cameras are racist. Uh, But uh, that's not true, obviously. And uh, these people are just the ones that happen to be speeding more often and happen to be driving places for no good reason, by the way, too. Uh, more often than not. You know, people drive on the road for no reason. You just get in the car and kind of buzz around town for no good reason. People do that. Uh, I, I don't understand it. Maybe somebody can explain it to me in an email uh, at slash uh, contact. I want to thank here. We're going to the uh, questions and answers. You can throw some questions in the uh, chat here on YouTube if you're watching live. But first of all, I want to thank uh, Ben and Teresa and Jackie. I'm not sure if Jackie's a uh, boy or girl. Jackie. Uh, Jesus, I assume it grew up maybe, I don't know. And Tim, uh, that's Ben, Teresa, Jackie, Jesus, and Tim uh, all came in with $50 donations. Uh, Thank you for making the show possible, guys. You know, it's not cheap to do this stuff. Uh, It takes a lot of discipline. And basically it works this way. It's value for value. If you get value from the show, you throw value uh, my way, you throw value at the show, keep me going, make it possible. And, uh, you know, we keep going. Of course, this stuff takes a lot of time mainly to write these shows, put them together, research them, all of that stuff. Uh, looking in the chat here, we have a few people chiming in about this uh, driving on pot. They're saying they see it everywhere. This person says, yeah, it's insane. This is John in the chat. He says, yeah, it's insane. I smell weed almost every day while driving. Usually you can look around and identify the culprit. Uh, they only use black and white photography. Yeah, <laughs> maybe so. Um, why would someone just drive around town for no reason? I don't know, dude. I don't know, Christian, but they do. Uh, Daniel says, Jacob, what are some good options to have my money work for me? I don't know what to do with my disposable income. And everyone has different input. I trust what you say, given your track record. Well, uh, Daniel, I'd say, you know, you you depending on your age, I mean, if you're real, real young, if you're 19, 20, 21, you don't really have disposable income. So really, you're just investing every spare penny you have in yourself trying to get your income up to have more disposable income, that's never a bad investment. I mean, if you are ever in a position where, you know, your job says, hey, we want you to get a a PhD, we'll chip in a little bit and it's going to massively increase your income, do that. That's the best investment in front of you because it it pays off every year and it gives you new capabilities and opportunities and all of that. So if you can ever invest in yourself, meaning add a real deal capability that gives you a high confidence interval that it will yield additional income, I think that's a great way to go. It's really hard to go wrong there. But it's important that it's a high confidence interval because every shyster and scam artist on the internet says, invest in yourself. And what they mean by that is send them your money and whether or not they're teaching you anything that's really a value is a big question. So you have to be careful with that adage. But if it is something that you are really quite certain will increase your income in a sustainable way, increase your opportunity in a, in a in your opportunity to make money and do other things in a sustainable way, you do that. Um, so that that's what I'd say. And then in, in the absence of that, supposing you've already done that, you max that out, it's hard to go wrong, uh, passive indexing. People uh, have tried to time markets. Most of them have failed. And, you know, maybe they did it right this time. Maybe they did it wrong that time. I've done it right before. My best trading day ever was August 24th, uh, August uh, 24th of 2015. I just happened to be really short that day. But that's not something that that you can repeat. You get lucky sometimes. So, you know, I I would say passive indexing is a good way to go. Uh, Depending on your age, it's going to be mostly stocks if you're younger. You may get more conservative as you're older and go for bonds. You can invest all over the world these days. You should probably have some exposure around the world. Africa is going to come online. The economy in Vietnam is going to continue to grow over the long term. U.S. economy is going to grow over the next 50 years. Will it grow over the next five years? It's hard to say, but it will almost certainly be larger in 50 years than it is today. Unless there's, you know, nuclear holocaust or something, In which case you don't have to worry about that anyway. Mm-hmm. So it's hard to go wrong uh, from that perspective. Uh, somebody says, was going to send you a super chat, but don't see the option. Thanks for years of interesting and informed perspective on current events. Uh, thanks so much. Uh, I can't uh, see the name here. It's E. e Marks, Neil. Uh Thanks so much. Uh, You can do cash app, cash up, uh, at real Jacob wall, cash app, real Jacob wall. If you'd like to donate, I'm trying to get the super chats working. I may just be banned from YouTube monetization. I don't know. I just may be banned. Um, I am not, not sure at all. Uh, Danny's, oh, Danny's Danny's a longtime viewer. He's, he comes from censored. I remember him. He says 23 years old and I have a good job. Yep. Stay at it. I think passive indexing is a good way to go. Um, this person, uh, John here says, Jacob, what is your take on Korean boys and men dressing extremely effeminate, not even just the, K- the K-pop, but all of that? You know, <clears throat> I don't know. I'm That's something I'd, I'd like to understand. If any of you actually get that and where that comes from, email me, Jacobwall.org contact. I, I really want to know, but it is something that's not isolated to Korea or Japan. It's actually all over Asia. China's trying to stamp it out. They're trying to promote masculine values because they're worried about the feminization of their men. Of course, in the United States, the powers that be are trying to promote the feminization of men. I want to go to Kyle here. Kyle wrote in uh, via email, jacobwold.org contact. He wrote in a question for the show. Hey, Jacob, in your 19 rules, that's the 19 rules article on Substack, great read. I recommend you all check it out. Uh, you mentioned the importance of dressing well. I agree with you. Can you elaborate more on how I, as a 19-year-old college student, can set myself apart? what brands do you suggest? How formal should I be dressing to class? I don't mind spending the extra money, but I don't want to associate myself with the rest of the drunken frat students. For context, I am studying accounting. Uh, Keep up the great work, he says. Thank you, and keep up the great work. Well, Kyle, great question. I'm going to tell you. I mean, you're 19. It's tough. You're a college student, but I'll tell you what you do. Number one, uh, for trivial pieces of clothing like t-shirts, you don't waste your money find a t-shirt brand. They're, they're all different. I mean, I've got like two brands of t-shirts that I get at very low cost that fit me just perfectly. I mean, they just, the, the fit's just perfect. Uh, I have wide shoulders and a very small waist, about a 31 inch waist and wide shoulders. It's hard to find t-shirts that don't, you know, if they fit my sh- my shoulders, a lot of times they make me, they don't fit my waist well. They don't taper. So it's tough. Um, what I would say is find a couple t-shirt brands that fit you well and aren't expensive plain t-shirts. You can wear them for years. They're not going to go out of style next year. If they wear out, if they tear, you throw them out, get a new one. They're not expensive. Uh, with something trivial like t-shirts, I mean, I, I'll i buy them at uh, at Marshalls. I, I just don't care to have a shirt that's got, you know, a big uh, Italian brand logo slapped on the front of it. I think, uh, first of all, if you're in college, you can't afford it. But second of all, I just think it looks uh, trashy, even if you can't afford it. Looks ghetto, looks trashy, looks tacky. I don't like it. And then in terms of, you know, dressing for job interviews and stuff. So I don't think there's any need to be obscenely formal dressing to class. If you do buy something like polo shirts, that's where I might go a little bit higher quality so that they last you a while. But for t-shirts, I don't think you have to do that. Jeans, you know, find something that fits well. It's going to be different for everybody. Jeans, again, you can find jeans that last you for years uh, if you buy decent quality jeans. Uh, and again, you can find them at good deals. I, I, as somebody young, I, I would look at places like TJ Maxx You can find excellent clothing there for just tremendous prices at times and often in in, in good sizing. Uh, As far as dressing up, you know, dressing to job interviews and stuff, that's something I'm going to cover another day. Maybe write in next week about suits, ties, stuff like that. That's a longer uh, question, but um, that's how we will will talk. Uh, Somebody says, you're nice to hear 23-year-olds are subscribed to Censored. Uh, Yep, yep, he was subscribed to Censored for a long time. I remember him. So everyone here, if you can, yeah, somebody points out here, 30 watching, 15 likes, your like matters. Go ahead and like it. Help us out to uh, beat out the suppression algorithms here on YouTube. We're insanely shadow banned, not just on this show, but with uh, Predator DC, the other program that uh, I produce. If you've never seen Predator DC, it's worth a watch. Uh, I'm going here to this report. Speaking of Predators, speaking of what we do at Predator DC, we have a report here out of Rolling Stone. Report is uh, called, they Ju- they don't give a shit. Former agent says FBI ignores child sex abuse cases. Jane Turner, a 25-year FBI veteran who blew the whistle on malfeasance within her agency, says they botched Larry Nasser abuse case, uh, or says the botched Larry Nasser abuse case is part of a pattern. They don't give a shit. Former FBI agent says FBI ignores child sex abuse cases. Now, remember, You know, in the case of uh, the FBI whistleblower that came to the Washington Examiner, those folks were anonymous. Uh, This whistleblower is not. This is a 25-year veteran of the FBI. They have gone through the formal whistleblower process. That doesn't necessarily make them more credible, but it's not a bad thing in terms of being able to assess assess exactly who they are, uh, making sure that they actually exist, that they actually are people who have been at the FBI in the way that they claim to have been. So it's always good. Uh, this person's filed a formal complaint with Congress. They've, they've gone up the chain of command. Uh, they, have, they have filed a whistleblower complaint. But the report here in Rolling Stone, again, it's called They Don't Give a Shit. Former FBI agent says FBI ignores child sex abuse claims. Report uh, says uh, last week, the Justice Department's inspector general released a scathing report detailing just how badly the FBI botched major child sex abuse case involving Larry Nasser, former doctor for USA Gymnastics National Team at Michigan State University, accused of abusing dozens of young patients in his care across several states. The report says the FBI's Indianapolis field office did not respond to claims against Nasser with the utmost seriousness and urgency that allegations deserved and required, made numerous and fundamental errors uh, that they did not respond to them, and failed to notify state and local authorities of the allegations or take other steps to mitigate the ongoing threat posed by Nasser So this is important here. This is the FBI's Indianapolis field office. This is the Indianapolis field office here. And uh, by the way, they also have a Fort Wayne field office. Did you know that? They've got a lot of field offices. FBI does. This is the Indianapolis field office. So this, you know, flies in the face of this claim that's been made by back the blue conservatives who have said, people like Sean Hannity who have said, "Uh, it's the top of the FBI that's corrupt. The rank and file, the people throughout the country, they're great. They're perfect. They're patriots. They're wonderful. I've said for a long time, no, that's not true. It's like, and where do you think all these people who get to D.C. come from? Like the guy in Michigan who ran that B.S. sting operation that basically was entrapment, forced those guys, goaded them to try and kidnap the government uh, governor, basically uh, homeless people, goaded to try and kidnap the governor. And they finally said, oh, OK, and then they, boom, they arrested them. But this is in the Indianapolis field office, just like that guy who ran that was promoted to D.C. And in this case, this is the Indianapolis field office, totally ignoring the claims against Nasser completely uh, ignoring the complaints, not following up the uh, allegations whatsoever, not running an investigation, not looking into it, not making a case, not referring it out to local PD. The FBI is horrible when it comes to this stuff. Of course, uh, we recently on Predator DC had someone come into our stinghouse house named Jamie Menina. He was uh, an FBI special agent. He was fired by the FBI. He was uh, revoked a job offer from the NSA, of course, After being caught in our sting, he then went and tried to get restraining orders against me and against Jack Berkman. He didn't show up to court. The restraining orders were thrown out. Then he's now gone into Maryland and filed criminal charges against us, claiming electronic communications harassment and uh, wiretapping, which is just complete BS, of course. So the FBI has a ton of problems when it comes to their uh, aiding and abetting. I mean, that's really what it amounts to in these cases of uh, pedophiles, of abusers of children, sexual abusers of children. This was their domain. This was a case, child sex abuse, that was happening in multiple states. It is exactly the kind of thing that the FBI should investigate, should handle, given their charter. But they can't be relied on to do that. Among other failings, here's a report back to this, is in Rolling Stone again, uh, entitled, They Don't Give a Shit. Former agent says, FBI ignores child sex abuse cases. Continue here. It says, among other failings, the report states that the office did not return or did, did not document uh, their initial meeting with USA Gymnastics. So they didn't fill out a 302. They didn't document it at all, which approached the Bureau in July 2015 to report multiple gymnast allegations of sexual assault by Nassar. By the way, this is a mistake too. God forbid your kids are ever victimized or you have suspicions. You don't go to USA Gymnastics, okay? You go straight to the police, all right? You don't go to um, the company or the oversight board. You have to go straight to law enforcement because there is no case in which they can pursue things more quickly than you can. Anytime you add a layer, you're causing a problem in terms of time at the very least. So they didn't document it at all. How does that happen? Now, they did not properly document a thumb drive provided by the athletic organization that contains videos and a PowerPoint presentation by NASA. In which he described his treatment practices and used the word uh, "hoo ha" to describe female anatomy. According to the report, the office interviewed only one of three athletes uh, USA Gymnastics made available to them, and failed to document that interview. Yeah, that's very bizarre. Um, you don't use in the world of medicine. You don't um, you don't use slang terms to describe body parts. That's that's very just. That's a big red flag just on its own. Just on its own. The office debated whether the evidence warranted a federal case but failed to alert law enforcement or transfer the case to other jurisdiction despite saying they had. Now, here's the other problem here. USA Gymnastics goes to them. So the, the blame is not squarely with the FBI based on what I'm reading so far. USA Gymnastics goes to them and uh, they say, we had this issue, here's this flash drive. If USA Gymnastics had allegations from the gymnasts, they needed to put the gymnasts themselves in touch with the FBI. They needed to give the FBI the contact information for those parents to talk to those gymnasts directly, not simply rely on this sort of, you know, oh, here's a video of him saying the word hoo-ha. You've got allegations of molestation. You need to put the uh, law enforcement agency in touch with the victims of the molestation, not merely hand over kind of thumb drives and things. That that is that is totally. Uh, if this is in fact true, it is the wrong way uh, for that to be done. The reporting process is totally incorrect. And and given that you have an organization like USA Gymnastics, you would assume that th- there would just be some awareness, uh, some even even vague common sense about the. The need to, for that to be done. It says here, according to Jane Turner, a 25-year FBI agent turned whistleblower who reported the mishandling of crimes against children on American Indian reservations in North Dakota, the FBI's failures in the Nasser case are unfortunately not unique. Turner believes the breakdown comes from a lack of training in handling these kinds of cases, a lack of oversight when things get handled badly, and a lack of interest on the part of a majority White and male staff who, according to Turner, would rather be working more glamorous assignments. They don't give a shit about kids or young people, she says. They're just not that proficient in sex abuse. They can do the pornography, that kind of thing. But for really getting into it, it's not high on their list of give-a-shits. Now, again, their language is really... For a whistleblower complaint or for an interview with Rolling Rolling Stone magazine, I gotta say, I mean, not the most well-spoken whistleblower here. I'm just going to say that right out loud. Now, she's right about this. And and, and the problem is, as somebody now who, having done Predator DC, busted, uh, I think, over 100 Predators now in the DC area, high level people, federal judge, FBI agent, DOD, uh, 03 military officers, CIA, you name it, uh, and, and worked with law enforcement on this a little bit, what I can tell you is Local law enforcement agencies have sex crimes units for a reason. It is a technical kind of law enforcement and investigation to pursue. It has to be dealt with very sensitively. It has to be dealt with uh, with focus. It has to be able to suss out false allegations, which in this day and age are increasingly common. You have to have people who are adept at being able to deal with parents and then being able to interview children which is not something that is at all intuitive or, or something that can come without serious training and practice alongside somebody who is experienced at doing it. It is a tough thing to do. And so I think what comes of this is that you have to think, well, these FBI field offices have got to have their own sex crimes units, whether the units are comprised of two people or 20 based around uh, how many people are in that area. And again, due to the limited resources, the vast majority of time these units are probably going to need to refer out most things to local law enforcement and only handle ones which deal across state lines or deal with certain scenarios which introduce the federal jurisdiction. But it's a tough thing to do. You you, you can't just take Joe Blow, FBI agent who normally does bank robberies or normally does narcotics and then say, run the Nassar case. You just can't. Uh, they're not going to be able to do it. There is going to be a reluctance. I mean, you know th- there's there's an element of this where yeah you do need female officers to be able to um with you know perhaps a social worker honestly be able to say things like show me where he touched you and you can't take 28 year old you know hard charging male FBI agent and have him do that with the 9 year old girl 13 year old girl you just can't it's not appropriate it's not proper he's not going to want to do that for obvious reasons the kid's not going to want that to be done with him for obvious reasons. So you need female officers, you need male officers, and they need to know how to do sex abuse cases, which are, which are unique and require unique capabilities, unique uh, interview styles to be able to get to the truth. You're dealing with children. Children uh, don't communicate the way that adults communicate. Children can have uh, very creative memories. I mean, you can talk to a two-year-old or, or, or a four-year-old uh, and they'll tell you a memory that they have about them and their imaginary friend or them and the conversation they had with their teddy bear. So it's it's a very unique thing, and and the FBI, it would seem, are, are just not prepared to handle this kind of thing. Now, whether it's out of malice or whether it's out of the way that they've set up these field offices, the way they've set up the agency, that's another question. It says here in the article from Rolling Stone, uh, Nasser is now serving what amounts to uh, life in prison for Michigan State sexual abuse charges and a federal child pornography indictment because of the Indianapolis field office delays. However, the inspector general's report said that Nasser was able to abuse an estimated 70 more young athletes between July 2015 and August 2016, when the Michigan State University Police Department received a separate complaint about Nasser that found and found child pornography in his home, for which he eventually drew the federal charge. To Turner, it's all typical of the way the Bureau operates. So again here, you say 70 more young athletes were abused because of this. And and by the way, we know about the girls that were abused. It would not surprise me at all if he also abused little boys. And they haven't learned about that yet. What we have found in doing Predator DC and doing three seasons of that program now and possibly working out a fourth, I won't say, and possibly doing other assignments around the country, similar to what we've done so far, is uh, truly, if, if you don't bust these guys, yes, they are they are rampant. They will go out, and, and there are women too. There are some women that do this. They basically become teachers. They abuse boys mostly. Sometimes girls, they're not caught nearly as often. Sometimes they have accomplice men. We dealt with that. We had a teacher we busted. The girlfriend wanted to get involved in the molestation too, Thomas Burner. That episode's up on my YouTube channel. If you don't bust these guys... They will abuse dozens more children in a hurry. Now, they say an estimated 70 more. Those are the ones you know about. Those are the ones who have come forward. It could be many more than that. And, and that's why the, the, the sort of sting operations that we do are so important. Because it's like a DUI checkpoint, okay? You can catch drunk drivers in the act when they're swerving on the road. That's a lot harder than it setting up a checkpoint at a time that you know and a place that you know drunk drivers are going to be on the road. And you pick off 10, 15, 20, 30, 40 in one night, and potentially you stop them from drinking and driving the next night, the night after that, and the night after that. It's kind of the same philosophy when it comes to catching sex predators, especially the, what I will say are, and it's hard to say they're high level in any way, but I would say the the more sophisticated sex predators, the people who are the doctors, the lawyers, the judges, the FBI agents, if you want to catch them, you really have to use the sting operation to do so. Because the thing with these guys is that they're very good at picking their victims. What I mean by that is that they they target people they have authority over, if they're in a position to have authority over children. Uh, they target young people who they determine have absent parents in the home, single parents a lot of times. They will ask, and we've seen this in our sting operations, in the transcripts, when, when they're texting back and forth with the decoy, they'll say, hey, you know, well, what would your parents think of this? And-, and You know, the decoy replies, honestly, I don't even think my parents would even care if they ever noticed I was doing anything. And they love that. That makes them more interested. So if you want to bust these guys, you can do it this way. The problem is if you do it this way, if you're not proactive in going out there, you've already got a list of victims that's going to number in the dozens or hundreds by the time you catch them, if you ever catch them. Because like I said, they're very good at picking their victims. Says Turner, who joined the Bureau as an agent in 1978, believes. The Nassar case and her own experience with child sex abuse cases are, in large part, caused by the lack of diversity among the FBI's ranks. 83% of FBI's roughly 13,000 special agents are white. I don't know what that has to do with most things, but they're also around 80% men. Yeah, you're going to want some women to do sex abuse cases. Certainly so. Uh, It's a white male culture, she says, but most of the people who work crimes against children are women, uh, whether they stick their hand up or are just chosen, you know, send Jane out there to handle that. And they're probably very good, but there's not many of them. So again, that gets to the problem here. Same problem that we've observed with law enforcement. When we try to cooperate with law enforcement for Predator DC, what I can tell you is that it's very, very tough. Not tough a lot of times, even because they don't want to get involved. They just don't know how. You get very quickly mired in bureaucratic wrangling. Um, There's some editing that goes on in the show, obviously, to just for the sake of, of economy of time. When they show up to arrest these these guys, if they're already there, or whether they have to show up to arrest them, you know, when we've done Predator, I mean, it takes a long time. There's calling of supervisors. Oh, we got to call this guy. Well, we have to call CID sex crimes. They're going to want this. Okay, well, who do we give the laptop to? They have to call 15, 20 different people. It's not a consolidated process. I mean, even when they're they're all in it effort-wise, when they're, when they're spirits behind the effort, Still, there's this, there's this bureaucratic uh, incompetence that, that exists, and this bureaucratic, if, even if it's not incompetence, inefficiency that exists, that makes it very, very hard. I can tell you that having been there, uh, dealing with law enforcement in these cases, it is very difficult. Is it my job? I don't know. Uh, should I hand it to him? Is it his job? Uh, it's like hot potato to get people to follow through on this stuff. It's very, very difficult. Uh, plus, she says, the subject matter is uncomfortable and foreign to many agents. Absolutely. Nobody. I mean, let me tell you, you look at these transcripts, sometimes we'll flash a few of them during the show on Predator DC. They are sick. I mean, you you don't, you don't, most of these transcripts are too sick to show in a screenshot, even if we censor them. Even if we censor this word and that word, they're, they're literally too deranged and too sick to show. They will make you nauseous. They have, I can tell you, Early on, I've developed, I guess, a stronger stomach, but seeing these transcripts from these guys, I have, I have vomited before. I mean, I've, I've just gone to the bathroom and thrown up. It's been that bad. I mean, we, we see it all the time. Uh, she says on the Nasser thumb drive, uh, for example, according to the inspector general's report, the disgraced doctor explained pelvic floor manipulations attempting to justify his crimes by discussing them or disguising them as uh, legitimate physical therapy practices. Uh, Turner says the first thing she would have done is call a medical professional to find out what Nasser was talking about in the presentation. She thinks the agents who reviewed the thumb drive may not have bothered to figure out what they didn't know. They didn't want to uh, do have anything to do with pelvic floor, she said. Hell no, those are big manly men. And it's true, and, and you just don't want to look at this stuff, and you want to look away, and ultimately what you have to find is you have to find those people out there, and you're going to have to find women too, uh, with strong stomachs with really strong constitutions and really strong focus uh, who can uh, get that information and and figure it out and run these cases because the average police officer just can't do it. They just can't do it. The the report here from Rolling Stone continues on uh, several counts. But it is clear the FBI is very eager to go after conservatives. They're very eager. They're, they, just in the last week, they have unsealed, can you believe this, more January 6 cases. People waltzing around the Capitol, le- legally or illegally. I mean, more January 6 indictments, rather than pursuing worthy uh, law enforcement investigative pursuits like this. They'd rather raid Mar-a-Lago. They'd rather look into whether Trump uh, paid too high of insurance bills, I guess, or Spy on Jacob Wall's emails, or who knows? i got to tell you, it's, it's becoming now the case that even mainstream conservative commentators are saying, people like Victor Davis Hanson are saying, it's time to abolish the FBI. And I agree, and, and I will tell you, any serious 2024 Republican candidate should call for the abolition, the abolishment of the FBI. The FBI should be done away with completely. And I think it's, it's up to us, it's up to Republican voters in any primary that might take place, if a candidate doesn't say that they want to abolish the FBI completely, I would, would say that they're disqualified. After what has happened, after the way that Republican voters have been targeted by this agency, while people like Larry Nassar were allowed to rape and molest children, it is time to do away with this agency. It is irreparably tainted. It is irreparably corrupt. It is irreparably incompetent in the areas that matter. It has to be done away with. And any presidential candidate who is serious on the Republican side, I would say on the Democrat side, but we know how that goes, has got to say the same thing. The FBI has got to be brought to a stop. They do more harm than good in this country. It's not even close. So I want to keep going here. Uh, We are experiencing right now in the United States of America, a complete, a complete assault on the Southern border. Uh, We have some really haunting statistics out here from reporter Ah, uh, Bill Mulligan. Uh, he is uh, Bill Fox, l a. on Twitter. Many of you have seen his reporting. He'll be banned from Twitter sometime soon uh, for tweeting out this kind of information. But uh, Bill Mulligan reports. He says, uh, breaking, it's official. For the first time, migrant encounters at the border have surpassed two million in one year. Migrant encounters at the border have surpassed two million in one year. CBP reports there were two hundred and three thousand five hundred and ninety eight migrant encounters at the border in August, bringing the total for forward year 22 to 2,150,370. That's a lot for August too because it's very hot in the month of August and it's very hot in Texas and in Arizona and in Southern California in the month of August. There was a heat wave in in Southern California, a really gnarly heat wave. And still, you've got 203,598 migrant encounters at the border in the month of August. He also includes here Uh, He says, a reminder, these numbers do not include the known gotaways, which DHS tells us are already well over 500,000 for forward year 2022 so far. So gotaways are, they saw them and the illegals got away. So you have 2,150,370 for the fiscal year 2022 uh, who have been uh, encountered by Border Patrol. Another 500,000 that were encountered but got away. Most of them don't bother to get away. They want to get caught because they're just caught and released into the country anyway. doesn't make a big difference. They're given some water, some food, and then they're put out and released into the country. Maybe even they'll find that a Republican governor will pick them up and ship them to a place where they can make a lot more money like Martha's Vineyard or Washington, D.C., although those people are now suing. Of course, they were rounded up and put in a class action by some Democrat lawyer. That's not a real lawsuit. It's not as though they organized a class action on their own. Clearly, that was a lawyer that, that put that together. So you figure that, and, and, and again, so you're talking 2.6, almost 2.7, you round up 2.7 million encounters for fiscal year 2022 already. This is so far, it's not wrapped up yet. And <clears throat> that doesn't count the people that have uh, just snuck across and never been encountered at all. So you probably have, I don't know, what how many more just were never encountered whatsoever. We don't even know. We can never know that number. We just don't know how about those who show up on visitors visas, which used to be the most common way, you just get a visitor's visa, walk across and don't go back, who have not uh, left the country on time. We don't know. The Point is, uh, our borders are open. They're more than open. They're actually being, in, people are being encouraged to come here in a fashion which is illegal or falsely declaring asylum, which uh, technically legal, but it's illegal to do so falsely, which many of them we know are doing. Uh, and Coulter, I uh, had a great column out this week in v talking about the entire Martha's Vineyard incident. Uh, it says here, rich Martha's Vineyard liberals have shown us the way on illegal aliens. The column said, it's been an awe-inspiring to see the bottomless generosity of Martha's Vineyard residents after Florida Governor DeSantis sent them 50 illegal migrants from Venezuela last week. We love you. You've enriched our lives. Now get the F out of here, she writes. Unlike angry white MAGA voters obsessed over their towns being flooded with illegals, vineyard residents would love to be sort of, what's the word, a sanctuary for illegals. Really, they would, but that won't be possible. As Lista Belcastro, uh, manager of the vineyard's homeless shelter, succinctly put it, we are definitely supplying them with a lot of love. They need to be off the island. That's what she said. We are definitely supplying them with a lot of love. They need to be off the island. The illegals need to hustle off because, quote, their immigration appointments are not here. Are there appointments in the Trump-supporting working-class town they were bussed off to? Uh, In any event, great news, Lisa. Nearly half of released illegals don't appear in their hearings anyway. And guess what? They are absolutely no consequences. He doesn't anti-American websites claim the vast, gigantic numbers of illegals show up for their hearings, but they're counting illegals who are being held in detention. Right. So when they're catch and released, uh, they never show up for their immigration hearings or asylum hearings at all, most of the time. Of course not. Uh, On NPR Vineyard radio host, Eve Zuckoff also began with a testimonial about how the community rallied, but unfortunately there isn't the infrastructure. What do these great humanitarians imagine dirt-poor towns in South Texas have in terms of, quote, infrastructure? Every single objection Vineyard residents have raised against the illegals being allowed to stay is precisely what ordinary Americans, not privileged enough to live in Martha's Vineyard, have been screaming from the rooftops for 30 years. Those 50 illegals represented less than a millionth of the enrichment that's already been foisted on the rest of America. They're one 100,000th of the illegals admitted just under Biden. So just under Biden. Now, vastly poorer towns have been forced to turn nearly their entire annual budgets. Over to feeding, housing, educating, and incarcerating great heaping portions of third worlders, while douchebags in places like Martha's Vineyard, 88% white, 3.7% black, 1.7% Hispanic, preen about their higher morality. So, this is what she says. She talks about here the, the hospitals. If you've ever been to a hospital anywhere approaching the US Mexico border or many other places, you know that the emergency room is just filled with illegal aliens who are there for their cough, their cold, their what-have-you, because they won't be turned away. They'll be given antibiotics, whatever they need, and uh, they won't have to pay, ultimately. Somebody will pick up the bill somewhere down the line, whether it's a government or uh, an insurance reserve fund or the hospital's uh, foundation or what-have-you. Somebody pays at some point, but not the people receiving the health care. And that's the health care. What about the schools? Of course the incarceration. You go to look up California jails. Look up any name that ends in, you know, EZ, Gonzalez, Martinez, you will find that uh, Hernandez, I mean, you look up those kind of last names and you'll find there's 50 pages of incarcerated illegals in California who have committed serious crimes who are being housed in California prisons. Same in Arizona, same in Texas. This is a problem. It is tremendously costly for this country. And I'm telling you, if you live in Portland, Maine, or you live in... Uh, Wisconsin, where you live in uh, Martha's Vineyard, or Washington D.C., you just don't understand. You haven't paid the price of this, but if it continues unfettered, you eventually will. You will, if you allow the number of fifty million to go to to go to a hundred million, you will pay the price. You will pay the price eventually. People are being moved into the interior. They're moving into the interior. There's a there's a labor shortage in the Northeast that doesn't exist to the same degree in the southwest. It's happening. When I went to Louisiana uh, in 2013, it was summer to visit my grandmother, uh, I didn't see one Hispanic person the whole time I was there. That would not be the case today. It is changing, and it is uh, a, a tremendous problem. And, and she's right, uh, Ann Coulter is, the people of Martha's Vineyard have handled it perfectly. She talks about how you know Somalis were brought into Minnesota, and just this week there was this uh, indictment that came out of this Food, nonprofit. You see, this report turned out to be a a total scam. Two out of every four Somalis intercepted at New York's JFK airport are en route to an ISIS training camp, had used federal financial funds to pay for their travel. Did you know that? So, half of the Somali Minnesotans intercepted at New York's JFK airport en route to an ISIS training camp had used federal financial aid funds to pay for their travel. Ann Coulter points that out here. These are facts that you're just not allowed to talk about. These are things you're not going to hear on the Ben Shapiro show. You're not going to hear these uh, on most broadcasts. Tucker Carlson will broach these issues from time to time. You will hear them here on the Jacob Bull Show. I will hold nothing back. I have paid a tremendous price for this. In 2017, when President Trump first started retweeting me and people were saying, who's this 19-year-old that President Trump is, is retweeting? In July 2017, August 2017, when he wasn't retweeting, other civilians. He retweet the vice president. He retweeted Ivanka maybe from time to time. I could have gone. I could have sold out. I could have been on a Daily Wire saying, boom, liberals owned and all this stuff. I could have done the generic TPUSA route. I couldn't do it. though. I just couldn't bring myself to stomach being such a phony. And by the way, the, the rewards for selling out, I mean, you don't have to work that hard. That's the upside. But the rewards aren't that great. I know people that have sold out and they're not rich. You know, they make 90000 a year. And I just figured I'm too capable to sell out. I'm too capable. I, I don't need to sell my soul for eighty grand a year from Charlie Kirk. I don't need to sell my soul for 90000 a year from The Daily Wire. You know, I, I don't need to sell my soul to get an internship at the Heritage Foundation. I'm capable enough to go out there and chart my own path. That's what I'm doing here with the Jacob Wolf Show, uh, it is so wonderful to have all of you on this episode and and so many others. I want to wrap up the show here with this uh, last segment uh, talking about a, a tweet out from uh, Scott Adams. Uh, this is uh, interesting. Uh, Scott Adams tweeted this. He says here, uh, The worst life decision a young single person can make is getting a dog. It limits your options by about 40%. This is the tweet from... Cartoonist uh, Scott Adams, he says here, the worst life decision a young single person can make is getting a dog. It limits your options by about 40%. Well, I can tell you here, uh, Arthur and Eva don't agree. Uh, those of you watching uh, on the video form, uh, whether live or later on on YouTube, can see a, a nice picture of Arthur and Eva, my uh, male intact, of course, male Doberman and uh, female Belgian Malinois, KNPV Belgian Malinois, really Belgian Malinois Dutch Shepherd, but it's all about the same when you talk about KNPV lines, uh, just kind of half and half, I suppose, looks more like a Malinois than a Dutch Shepherd, but you can see them here on the screen if you're watching. But is Scott Adams right? He says uh, the worst life decision young a young single person can make is getting a dog. It limits your options by about 40%. Well, I can think of a lot worse options that they can do. I mean, a lot worse decisions they can make, like smoking dope or getting into drugs or becoming a drunk or uh, hanging out with losers. I mean, those are all worse things. But he says this is the worst thing you can do, and it limits your options by about 40%. Well, somebody on Twitter replied to Scott Adams. Uh, They said here, this is a quote from somebody replying to him, not me, someone else. They said, counterpoint. Single people shouldn't take advice from twice-divorced guys who spend their free time being a button-pushing jerk on Twitter. Well, that was somebody's reply. I'll tell you what I think here. And I I have a very uh, unusual opinion of this that is is non-binary. Scott Adams says uh, it's a terrible decision for a young single person to get a dog. It limits your options by about 40%. Well, what does he mean by that? Uh, Does it mean limits your options to... Uh, date somebody who is, uh, and and in fairness, I wasn't single when I got these dogs. I'm going to say that too. I was not single at all in a very serious relationship. I'm not single now. Same serious relationship. Okay. So he says it limits your options getting a dog by about 40%. It limits your options to what? Uh, Date somebody who is uh, allergic to dogs, perhaps. Does it limit your option if you get a big, serious dog like uh, Arthur or Eva to get a cat? very well could, or a pet hamster. The dogs may not like the hamster. Uh, Does it limit your options to live in uh, dog-free situations in terms of they want a dog deposit to live there or uh, they want, uh, you know, certain breeds are banned? Like you look at Arthur and Eva here, Belgian Malinois and and Doberman, these breeds of dogs would be banned in in most apartment buildings. Uh, They have a banned breed list. They don't like dangerous dogs, uh, they say, dangerous breeds. And it's like, are Arthur and Eva dangerous? Well, yeah, I suppose they bite harder than your golden doodle. They run faster, they're bigger, they're stronger, they jump higher. They can channel more drive and aggression, I suppose, but that comes down to the person, whether they can have a dog like that. So it would limit your options in that regard. It would limit your options to, you know, suddenly, I mean, to some degree, it might somewhat make it harder to to pick up and move, but not really. I mean, you could move state to state. It might limit your options to like pick up and travel the world or, 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 or take a job overseas. Um, you know, it could, like I said, it could limit your options on certain rentals. Um, although there are ways around that you get those emotional support tags and things like that. There are ways around those limitations and sometimes you pay a $500 deposit. It's fine. So what I will say is this, I think that Scott Adams is right to a degree that it, that it limits your options. Certainly if you're single and you're not in a serious relationship, you got to take care of the dog all on your own. You can't, uh, go on that trip and you got to find somebody to watch the dog and all of that. But the other factor I will point out here is that I think sometimes limiting your options and committing yourself to discipline gives you far more freedom. Now, this is seemingly counterintuitive, but it can be the case that limiting your options, being committed to discipline, to habits, to doing the same thing for a while can actually open up things to you, can open up opportunities, can open up relationships, can open up job offers, can open up financial opportunities, uh, investments, you name it. It really, really can. And one of the things I will tell you, I mean, I've experienced this in my own life. In, in 2020, I uh, traveled to probably 2019, 2020, half the states in the union various political activities. And I I convinced myself, I got to run over there. I got to do this. I got to do that campaign activity. I got to go to that fundraiser. And the dogs, uh, part of the way through 2021 or Arthur, namely slowed that down. But what I found is that you don't need to travel all over for all these things, especially in the age of uh, telecommuting or now it's more known as uh, virtual work or what have you. And what I will say is that, is that young people these days, uh, They have a a much greater, I would think, speaking as one myself, 24 years old, there's a much greater influence if you're on social media. And I'm not, I mean, I'm not on Instagram. I don't have the app. I don't have TikTok. I don't have uh, Twitter. I don't, I'm not involved in it. I don't consume it. I don't produce it. I'm banned. So that's that. I'm banned. They don't get my eyeballs and they don't get to sell them to advertisers. That's my determination on it. And it's great. I have way more time. Now, all of that stuff took up two, three hours a day for me to produce content that I had to do at the pace to grow the way I was growing. Would I like to still have them at certain times? Of course, there were certain upsides that I don't enjoy any longer. But there's this fear of missing out that's driven by social media of, you know, Jim's going here, Jim's doing that. Oh, he's moving to Argentina for a year to do this. Oh, she's moving to Italy to do that. There's this fear of missing out that's driven by your friends and people you know and people you don't know even who are posting on social media. And what that results in is a, a much greater sense of, of being mercurial by young people. And they've always, oh, young people have always been mercurial. They've always been impulsive. That's not new. But but in the age of social media, I think everyone's more mercurial. Everyone's more likely to, what's that? Fly fishing? I'll try that out. What's that? Uh, a model rocketry? Let me give that a try. It, it, you can just get into anything. You can learn about anything instantly and, and then you can find people who are doing it. It looks interesting. I wanna do that. And I have seen this come at people's expense. I have seen this materialism uh, more times than not lead people down a negative road as opposed to a positive one. You hear a lot about, I mean, at least people my age and people even 10 years old, it's mostly millennials and Zoomers, you'll hear a lot about traveling the world. I want to travel the world. You hear this all the time. You always ask the question, for what? I've, I've traveled the world. I've been to 39 countries, but each and every time that I travel the world, there was a specific purpose for doing so. There was a commercial purpose for doing so. And by the way, I find that all the interesting things that happen when you're traveling happen when you're going somewhere and you're on a specific kind of mission. You're on a business deal. You're on an assignment. You're doing something where you have to get it done while you're there. And that's where everything interesting happens. It doesn't happen hanging out in in tourist traps and going on tours and uh, hanging out with other tourists or or you know, going wine tasting, then nothing much that interesting happens in those cases. You don't really ever meet anybody that really proves to be a long-term uh, relationship in business or romantically or otherwise doing that. You just don't. You go someplace on a mission, that's another thing. But I always think, why? I want to explore. I want to broaden my horizons. And, and there's a certain high when you first land somewhere and you think, I'm going to broaden my horizons and my perspective is going to be widened and all of this stuff. And I find that more times than not, it's just not true. Uh, everyone that I know who has decided to like, do something like move to Argentina for a year has come back with little more than wasted time, a uh, few cases of food poisoning, and a couple of maybe mediocre stories at best. We were driving on the mountain, man, but then the snow came down and we had to walk. Blah 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 blah, blah and then we ended up here, and then this barkeep let us in. And okay, fantastic. And that's especially the case when you weren't there for any particular good reason. When you were there for a purpose, you know, it seems that then there can be certain really interesting stories. And you know, when you're traveling to go rejigger the quality control in Guangzhou or go to you know Moldova to assess a, a call center or go to uh, Nigeria to... Uh, appraise the value of a portfolio of non-performing loans, well, then the interesting stuff seems to present itself because you're, you're really dealing in the place. You're, you're getting your claws into it in a certain sense. You're not just passing through. You're not just passing through town. So These people I know, I mean, I know so many people have done this. They, they moved to Italy for a year. First of all, usually they don't even bother to learn the language. I mean, I, I would at least learn the language. They don't even learn that a lot of the time. And if, you know, you don't use it, you lose it. There's that too. So if I went and learned Swahili and I would never use it again, and what would be the point? I learned Russian. I, I use it enough to kind of keep myself up to at least conversational level. It, it drops from fluent. It comes back. If I do a lot of it, it comes back up to fluent, but it, it, it drops back down to, you know, kind of conversational. if I If I don't keep up with it, obviously, that's what happens. So they don't even really learn the language a lot of times. Uh, they don't get anything out of this all you know this whole traveling the world business. And what I would say is they miss out on opportunities that would have been there if they stay put. It's not just travel though. I mean young people, it seems uh, these days people switch jobs every 18 months. They switch hobbies every two years, they uh, switch careers every five years, they switch spouses at least every ten. Just look at Scott Adams and, and frankly, look at his uh, now recently former spouse, uh, Christina Basham. She's a model, then she's a travel blogger, then she's a pilot, then she's a commercial pilot, and I'm sure it's all been great fun in the moment, but, but what does it lead to? What's the story arc to all of that? If you opened up a book, a fictional book or a biography, and the biography just went like this. Chapter one, he decided to be a tour guide. Chapter two, he decided to be a pilot. Chapter three, he decided to be a uh, uh, a, a, a winemaker. Chapter four, he decided to be a metallurgist. You'd say okay, but where is this going? What is the arc here? Where does this land? And what is? Where does it lead? What's the conclusion of all of it? You know, and the problem is it wears off too. And you get older, you can only you you can't always do so much travel. Some people can, but most people can't travel the way they could when they were in their twenties, when they're in their seventies or eighties. They just can't. The jet lag, the fatigue, the need to have the pharmaceutical specialty drugs you're on. Uh, obtained. You just can't travel the same way. The fact you'll be targeted by thieves when you travel there, you can't do it the same way. Where does it lead? You have to think about all of this stuff. Somebody says it's like they are mimicking the pilot uh, in Catch Me If You Can. Yeah, uh, DiCaprio's character. Exactly. And where did that all lead for him? Nowhere good. So there, there are times when in life I think you can, you, you can limit your options and it can be a good thing. I'm not telling you to stay in a job that's hellish and terrible. I'm not telling you to do that at all. But when you're in a good job and you just get a little bit bored, maybe that's not the time to switch jobs. Maybe, maybe you stick with it and maybe you find ways within that job to, to make it more interesting. And then what do you know? Really good things come out of it. Like when you see these people that started off as a, a junior member at Goldman Sachs and then they become the CEO, started off as a uh, VP of whatever at a big corporation, then they're the CEO start off low. They work their way all the way up to CEO. Do you ever think, I mean, and it's the, forget CEO, just a top person, top guy, C-level executive in the company. Do you think that they were ever bored? Yeah, I bet so. I bet working at, you know, Home Depot in the corporate sector of Home Depot for for, for 20 years, there were certainly times that they were bored. And I'm, I'm just telling you, sometimes the ability to stick with something, with, to, to, to stay put and to stick with something yields some power, yields uh, something positive. I look at the career of, of our defense secretary, for example. I was looking at his Wikipedia page recently. And I mean, it's very. it looked very boring most of the time. He was in a recruiting command in Minnesota or something, and he's doing recruiting up there for the Army, and then he's out here. I mean, other parts, very interesting. But to get into those interesting spots, there were clearly sections where he had to endure really sucky, boring stuff. And during all of that, he could have bounced out and gone and done something that's new and has the sheen of being interesting simply because it is new. But he didn't. And sometimes there's an upside to that. Not always. There are no guarantees of that. But sometimes there is. So I look at Scott Adams and I look at a guy that's had all these options. I mean, options galore. He has gone from you know being an executive in the telecom realm to being a cartoonist, to being a public speaker, to being a political commentator, to being a streamer, to keeping up the cartoons. All these options, but he doesn't have any kids. He dated a woman 40 years younger than him or something or 30 plus years younger than him and now she takes off because she's no longer interested and she got bored with whatever material trappings he could provide, presumably, or who knows? I don't know. Now what does he do? Start over? I mean, at some point you don't get to start over. That's the thing. I mean, you know, when you're 80, there's a certain age where dating the young, beautiful, fertile woman, it doesn't look right and it isn't right. It doesn't fit. And that's just one sector of where things can go wrong, of where uh, uh, having too many options and bouncing all over the place and being super mercurial can look interesting on paper, can certainly look interesting from where you sit, and might be the wrong move. So with Scott Adams, right, can, can dogs limit your options by 40%? Absolutely. And I think a lot of people could be very well served by having their options limited by 40%. Thanks for watching the Jacob Wool Show, everyone, today. Send in your donations, Cash App, Real Jacob Wohl. I'll have other ways of doing that up soon. Tune in on Monday, live on YouTube, podcast apps everywhere. Leave a five star rating if you're listening in a podcast app. Share the links with your friends. I really appreciate it. It's the most important thing. Like and share and review. That's the critical part of getting the show out there, growing the broadcast, making it sustainable. Thanks so much for watching, and I'll see you on Monday, 2 p.m. Eastern Time, live.